Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chaffers. And this time we're back in the land of caffeinated beverages, taking a look at one of the great mysteries of tea and coffee. You may remember back in October, I spoke to Stuart McCook about the global history of coffee rust disease. The disease first menaced coffee production in the 1860s in Ceylon, and there's a widespread belief that it was the switch from coffee to tea in Ceylon, which then was a British colony, that turned the Brits into a nation of tea drinkers. It's it's such a beautiful story, and I, I really felt kind of bad <laughs> about about blowing it up. But uh, it it sort of it defies logic. Wherever we're going to look for the great British consumption switch from tea, coffee to tea, it's not you're not going to find it with the coffee rust in Ceylon. After that episode with Stuart McCook came out, there was a brief flurry of interest on Twitter as I tried to discover the truth of the matter, and almost everyone who responded said. You've got to talk to Erica Rappaport. I'm Erica Rappaport. I'm a professor of history at University of California, Santa Barbara. And I published A Thirst for Empire, How Tea Shaped the Modern World. Erica Rappaport describes herself as a scholar of consumer culture. And her book is an absolute tour de force. As I learned, there's no simple answer to my foolish question. But I had to ask it anyway. What did turn the Brits into a nation of tea drinkers? It's interesting because some people will say, of course, well, Britain's empire, you know, Britain owned the territory in India where uh, tea was grown on a commercial scale. But the fact is, Britons were already tea drinkers before that time. You know, they it's because they were tea drinkers that they acquired the land for empire. So it wasn't just the fact that they owned these territories and wanted to make the empire pay. And the Britons were drinking Chinese tea for the entire 19th century until the 1890s. There's a shift from Chinese to Indian tea and then to tea from Ceylon. Of course, imperial um, relationships helped, but it wasn't the only thing because Britons were drinking really equal amounts of tea and coffee throughout the 18th century. And, well, there was a bit more coffee in the beginning of the 18th century. And then tea and coffee were still both very popular in the early 19th century. And by the mid-19th century, you start to see tea really take off and coffee stabilize. So there's a number of um, theories about it. You know, I mean, the other theory that major scholar of sugar believes is that, of course, the tea had sugar in it and it became very addictive. You know, the combination of the sugar and the tea and the caffeine and tea helped industrial Britons work long hours in the factories. And so that there, that is something to that. But you could put sugar in coffee too. So it doesn't really explain that. One of, one of the peculiarities, I think, of, of tea drinking in England is, I mean, if you, if you look at mid-18th century furniture, you've got these strange locked tea caddies. I and mean, tea's, tea's mm. a real luxury. It's really upper, upper class, rich people. Um, right. So is that to do with sort of the fashion for China and, and is it conspicuous consumption as well? Um, I think so. It, it definitely is. And as you're right, tea was very expensive and it was a luxury item and people, you know, it was just the upper class. It's definitely not a national drink. Um, so it wasn't even all, say, middle class families or something like that. 
it doesn't really become a mass commodity until the, it's a big debate, but about, I would say the 1830s, and actually it's the temperance movement that picks it up, and it sort of really gets associated with um, kind of moral product, I guess, if you will, a Christian product, you know, the temperance movement. There were radical socialist temperance advocates, but most of them were um, evangelical Christians. Mm. Um, and so it really gets associated as a very spiritual sobering, you know, that idea of like the cup that cheers but does not inebriate. And again, coffee can do that too, but, you know, and it was upheld, but the temperance movement had business interests with China, so they particularly promoted tea. So from the mid-18th century to the late 19th century, almost all the tea was coming from China anyway. Yes, yeah. I mean, again, there were early plantations that the British tried to do by... um, taking Chinese people, laborers, but they were not tea makers and trying to establish a tea industry in Assam, you know, in the northeast of India. And they didn't have a lot of success for a number of reasons. One, it's hard to make good tea. I mean, they could grow plants, but, you know, to actually turn it into a um, nice drink. So the first people who tasted the drink basically said, this tastes like wheat. (laughs) And so it wasn't particularly successful until around, it starts to get blended in tea packets really in any significant amount in about the 1860s um, in the brand, you know, this starts to be the beginning of tea packets that are packaging tea from the 1860s to 1880s. And then you start to see a push for pure, you know, Indian tea. If people didn't like the taste of Indian tea, how, how were they persuaded to, um, to prefer Indian tea? Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because it's, it does taste very different or de- different than most Chinese tea. If we're talking about black tea, so Chinese green tea was popular in Britain until about the same period. And for because it was heavily adulterated, it ended up being legislated against, essentially. Um, but black teas still taste very different, the Chinese and the Indian. And the Indian tea was, you know, really distasteful to most of the experts, but it had one virtue, which is it's a lot stronger. So poor people could use less tea. So it became much more affordable, not in the shop necessarily, like per ounce, but um, to make a cup of tea or a pot of tea, or you could reuse it. The first real large consumption of black tea is often in the poorest districts in in the United Kingdom, you know, in the industrial districts or um, actually in... um, Northern Ireland was one area where they drank a lot of black tea. Scotland as well, you know, some of the poorer areas. So black tea had that advantage for various reasons, too. Chinese tea's quality was going down in that period. So probably the people had a good palate could start to notice that the Chinese wasn't as good as it had been in the early 19th century. And then also, I argue, there's a massive amount of advertising. So the really interesting thing about tea is that it was one of the first products that was advertised on a large scale with a large advertising budget, that is Indian teas. So there's a lot of efforts to teach consumers that they should buy tea from their empire. So you start to see this imperialism, patriotism in the late 19th century advertising. The planters are like, how will they know that they're drinking, you know, their own product from their own empire if we don't put it right on the package or advertise that? So there starts to be an effort to, you know, put those images of India and Indian-like names and... Um, pictures of the Taj Mahal and things like that to try to identify the tea from that it comes from the empire rather than China. I mean, one of the things that struck me reading your book is that, um, how can I put this? Um, it's, it's kind of racist about Chinese tea. <laughs> yes, it is. 
very racist. So the, they'll talk about, you know, first of all, letting consumers know where the tea comes from, but then starting to identify a lot of negative images that are quite racist with Chinese tea. So the main thing that they did would say that Chinese tea is made by hand, not in modern factories as the British do. You know, it's, tea has to be rolled and dried, and the machinery for making that was developed in, actually primarily in Scotland, but then, you know, exported to India, so it was used in India. But the ads would say, look, we have modern, clean tea that's supervised by white people, you know, the white managers, and that tea from China is touched by dirty Chinese people who literally they'll say they sweat in your tea, you know, like that they're touching it by their hands or rolling it by hand, stomping on, you can roll tea with your feet too. So they say that you're actually might be drinking, you know, uh, remnants of a Chinese person's foot, you know, <laughs> it's this, you know, and try to develop a lot of disgust. I mean, one tea importer did say, oh, I once found a, you know, fingernail in the tea and that, you know, and dirt and adulterants, etc. Um, and they'd often say that the Chinese producers were fraudulent, you know, tricksters, you know, the kinds of racist images that were very prominent in the late 19th century towards the Chinese. But they, I mean, they, they, there was adulteration. I mean, they had good cause to worry about yeah. adulterated tea, no? Yeah. When I first started the research, I thought, oh, this is just a trumped up story to get people to buy Indian tea. That The adulteration, could, you know, is kind of like being blown out of proportion. The more I researched it, I realized that tea was so heavily adulterated, and most foods were in the mid-19th century too, especially green tea. They had chemicals that would be added to make it look what I imagine was like a neon green color, not a sort of subtle green in your cup, but from the descriptions, it sounded like super green. And also other adulterants that would, like if it was black tea, they put lead in it to make it look darker and make a dark brew but wow. obviously not healthy, really unhealthy things. Um, Britain was one of the first countries to pass food adulteration, pure food acts that was um, became very common, of course, in other countries later. Right. And I guess it's also, on the other side, it's also not entirely true that Indian tea was untouched by human hand. Yeah, exactly. So there weren't that many machines actually used in the Indian and, and Ceylon tea gardens. They had some and, um, you know, a few and they came in later. So it was, and I have pictures where they, um, you know, they rolled it and dried the tea by, with these machines, but then they would dump it on the floor in a warehouse in India. And then, um, you know, Indians were sort of like shoveling it into boxes and, and the crates, etc. You know, so it not only was touched by human hands, but was dirty. And clearly, I, I was interested. I mean, the the, the, the whole timescale thing is is so interesting because way before the eighteen sixties, by by eighteen thirty nine, you quote people saying that tea was once a luxury but is now a necessary of life, and astonishingly, in eighteen thirty six, the tax on tea paid for more than the whole cost of the of the Royal Navy. So it it was big business. Yes, exactly. So it's really astonishing how, I mean, we can, most uh, British historians associate that period, the 1830s, as you know, that sort of intense transition to industrial economy, a lot of incredible poverty, strikes, but the working class, what little money they had, most of them were drinking tea, not to the extent that they would be later, but everybody, they felt it was a necessity in the sense of maybe drinking a couple of cups of tea a day, not the 10 cups a day that they would in the 1930s. So the price kept going down and consumption kept going up. But certainly 
most areas of Britain were drinking tea by the you know late 1830s. You know, and the taxes really did pay for the British government essentially to run. It was primarily to paid for the navy, and that paid for the empire. So they were very entwined. You, you mentioned the whole thing about about sugar and and tea. They're both products of empire. Um, so was the was the fashion for for sweet tea and for sweet things and cakes with high tea? Was was that a kind of deliberate effort to to shore up empire businesses? I thought it was going to be. That's exactly what I thought I was going to find. But more sugar was produced, you know, in the slave colonies in um, the Caribbean. And sugar was the most important sort of imperial commodity in the 18th century. But when slavery was abolished in the um, late 1830s, Sugar colonies were going through a lot of changes, not as profitable. And it may have been, I mean, I didn't see efforts of the sugar industry to deliberately, you know, produce cookbooks and, you know, push uh, sugar as a moral good. Um, But the same communities, the abolitionist communities or anti-slavery actually were the ones pushing sugar and tea. So it's interesting. They may have thought, oh, we're going to do this now to help the post-slavery sugar producers. But I didn't really see evidence of that. But what I did see was that sugar was considered um, by the evangelicals, again, as a moral good, something that would offset alcohol, you know, that you shouldn't drink alcohol. And then they started to include beer in that. And the total temperance movement took off in the 1830s and 1840s. They didn't just say, don't do anything that's fun. They, you know, gave people an alternative. And they said, the alternative is this lovely tea with sugar and then all the sweet things that you associate with as you say like an afternoon tea or a tea party cakes breads um fruit at that time which was kind of some of it was fairly rare but you know the idea was that you know here's your alternative pleasure um you you do paint a a, a remarkably graphic picture of some of these temperance tea parties with two thousand people sitting down to tea and cakes yeah, it's incredible. The, there's all these myths associated with the history of tea, and one is that, um, you know, the t- afternoon tea party was an upper-class invention in the um, 1860s, but I found that temperance tea parties were serving tea in the afternoon in the, with the foods and things that we associate with afternoon tea to working-class communities, and particularly in the north of England and industrial areas of Scotland and Ireland in as early as the late 1820s. But what was remarkable to me, I don't know if you've ever tried to serve a number of people tea. It's really hard to brew tea for, you know, a few people, let alone hundreds. So I got really fascinated with actually the literal nature of what did these tea parties consist of. And then dozens of uh, volunteers brewing tea, baking cakes, um, you know, setting the table. They had amazing, um, they used cotton tablecloths and uh, greenery, uh, you know, sort of like garlands and, you know, incredible and I believe they were trying to show people this is sort of the a little glimpse of the life in heaven, the sweetness of the afterlife, you know, if you live a moral life and you're not a sinner. Uh, but I think a lot of people came because they were really fun and they were hungry and they had lots and lots. These tables were piled with food, you know. So why not go? Forget the message, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe the message got through to some of them. But the message thing's interesting because um, you mentioned the abolitionists and presumably the temperance movement too were they aware of conditions on the plantations in assam because that 
if you paint a delightful picture of the temperance tea parties, you paint a pretty horrific picture of, picture. of what's going on. Yeah. In, yeah. Yeah, no, the temperance movement, it was interesting because the abolitionists would, um, did encourage people to boycott slave-produced sugar. So they were aware, they were thinking about the conditions of labor, you know, as part of their, um, essentially, I could say it's almost like uh, abolitionist advertising and their propaganda to get people to oppose slavery. They, you know, that boycott movement was one of their strategies, but they never did that for tea. And I think it's because very few... Primarily, again, in the 19th century, the tea was from China, and it wasn't slave-produced. So it's interesting that tea is one of the few agricultural commodities of the period that wasn't literally slave-produced, but it was produced by in, in India by indentured labor that had just as bad conditions. You know, the health conditions of um, working on tea plantations was very bad. Many workers died. The, they were treated with horrible punishments, except, you know, it's very similar to um, Atlantic world slavery. But that didn't really take off. They weren't aware of it until the late 19th century. It was remarkable. I still never saw anybody saying, hey, we should boycott tea because of these conditions or use our influence to try to improve labor conditions. Um, I think people were so addicted that they <laughs> chose to overlook that and, you know, focus on them, you know, a nice, sweet, uh, tea shop worker or something, what they saw, you know, in, in Britain, but didn't. It was almost like blind to thinking about the labor conditions. I think um, you, you talk about some of these exhibitions in the late 19th century when um, India and Ceylon, either in cooperation or, 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 or in competition, participated in these huge trade exhibitions. And they painted a very rosy picture of what was going yes. on on their plantations. <laughs> and you can't blame them. Yeah, they. Um, it's really remarkable. So, in the from the time of the Great Exhibition in 1851, there was these just whole maybe for the next till the 1930s these very popular international exhibitions, as well as many smaller exhibitions that. Um, different industries would go at the great exhibition 1851 you didn't sell your goods but in later ones they became as you put like trade fairs where you would make deals with grocers and you know exporters and importers would get together and then consumers would come and learn about new products and sample products so they're very important for the business community in general the exhibitions were but as you say they were also it's quite popular in the exhibition to show the, the image you know tea gardens were beautiful so uh, illustrations of the tea gardens, but no people, not the difficult labor. And what I always think is funny is they always show the image of a beautiful uh, female tea picker, look like you know, it's like looking as though she's enjoying her um, sitting in the Himalaya, enjoying picking, and some beautiful sari, that kind of image, which we still sometimes see in tea packages. But you never show anyone weeding, for example, <laughs> you know, or the hard stuff. Um, and picking is not easy either, by the you know, but that. They did, at that point, advertising tried to show people the commodity chain. It was quite com common to say, look, we control the commodity chain from the garden to the cup. But the garden is beautiful, like a garden in Britain, you know, and tea gardens don't have any labor. You know, no one's sweating to produce your tea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are white folks in charge making sure everything's okay. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You've got a reproduction of, of, of a wonderful... Um, infographic i would call it I and mean, one of the first infographics i've ever seen of how indian tea overtook chinese tea around this period 
Yeah, that is wonderful. And it's a large, uh, they show it through a visual, a large growing image of an Indian man, as opposed to a shrinking, tiny little Chinese figure. So it was really um, clever. That was produced by the Indian Tea Association, which is one of the main, I guess, protagonists in the book. That's a group of planters from Indian um, who formed an association in the well, it started 1879, but 1880s. And they did basically two things. So they became a business sort of trade association. So they're very involved in India and regulating labor and actually being a lobbyist in many ways, um, creating kind of uh, racial hierarchies in India. But in Britain and around the world, they became in charge of global advertising. And so I argue that although we don't think of tea as the first kind of uh, modern global commodity, you might think of like when you think of globalization, you think of Coca-Cola or McDonald's or something like that. But these tea planters, the Indian Tea Association, were very adept advertisers and that they used those exhibitions, but also traveled. I was I was just astonished how much they traveled around the world in the 1880s and 1890s to open markets. Some of the same guys I thought it wasn't easy to travel then. How did they do that? And so that illustration came from one of their pamphlets and so also shows they had, you know, top uh, illustrators and, you know, advertisers of all sorts. Absolutely. And they're promoting tea generically. Um, essentially, the fight for whose tea you're going to buy doesn't come until quite a lot later. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it's um, initially... Tea is sold in grocer and other shops in bulk. It's only once you get packaging that you really start to get, get that kind of advertising and branding that will associate tea with where, what kind of tea, you know, where is it coming from? And that really takes off when the Indian and um, Ceylon planters are trying to promote the empire teas. If, if the Brits are a, a nation of, of tea drinkers, then the Americans are definitely a nation of coffee drinkers. But it all kind of started for the USA with, with the Boston Tea Party, and it was tax again. Yeah, I mean, taxes do matter. <laughs> taxes do matter. But, but, yes. But were they, were they willing to give up? Were the early colonialists, were they willing to give up drinking tea, or did they just not want to pay the tax on it? Yeah, so initially the reason, the, you know, the Boston Tea Party was... Uh, protest against the tax that the um that would have bolstered the east india company um and then east india companies having all sorts of financial crises um and so that's where the you know tax on tea was intended to shore up you know colonial finances the it was the not the consumers who rejected the tax but it was the um american tea importers who didn't like the controls that Britain was reasserting over the tea trade. They were all smugglers, basically, and they become, you know, founding fathers in the United States. We call them also free traders in Britain. People who went around the East India Company had total control of the tea trade. So anybody who tried to go around them and import directly from China or in other ways were illegal. But you would call them free traders in economic theory, but they were smugglers at the time legally. Um, so it was the American tea interests, which were very, it was very profitable, who also were particularly opposed to it. And then, and then of course, um, it's a complicated politics, but it seems that there's new books on the tea in the United States, which have been really helpful that came out some even um, just after my book. But one who argued, you know, these importers did, did stop people from drinking tea and they did start to drink not only coffee, but like what we would call herbal teas, local plants. They tried a lot of different things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
as and felt quite patriotic. But it, right after the revolution, you know, was over and American independence was declared, those importers went right back and started their own importing with the China trade. But it's kind of peaks off around um, mid-century, you know, I mean, the sort of mid-late 19th century and people start drinking more coffee and tea. They don't, there's always still a significant tea market in the U.S. That's what's sort of interesting uh, because it's so big. People aren't drinking that much tea, but they're drinking some. And so it still ends up being a large market. You don't know how to make tea over there. That's the major problem. But let's leave. It's true. No, it is true. (laughs) Let's leave that aside. There are a couple of more things. I I could talk about this forever. But there are a couple more things I wanted to talk about. Um, One is this this notion of, of tea being extremely gendered. This was said in in the 18th century, it was a woman's mm-hmm. drink. It was it was keeping women out of the coffee houses, which were far too rowdy. Mm-hmm. But as late as the 1930s in America, you've got someone saying tea is a woman's drink, unfit for and unworthy of a man unless he's a sissy. Yes, <laughs> and I think they really. I mean, they meant it. Tea is very gendered. In Britain, you can. There's no statistics that show that women drink more tea than men, especially in you know this in like 1930s, which is a, people drinking just enormous amounts of tea. So it's it might be gendered in the imagery occasionally. You know they'll show the tea party with women, but it's not gendered as a actual commodity. You know consumption. But in the United States, not only is tea considered um, very feminine, it's also associated with. Um, kind of upper-class New England, kind of sort of Anglophiles, you know, in American culture. And um, something, it's okay, your granny, like it always seems sort of old-fashioned, so it's, you know, that and a sissy's drink. And they use that word, and I found whatever, also there was a um, word for homosexual in this time, it was a mollycoddle, and I saw references to that, like really real men, you know, there's that famous sort of funny quote real men don't eat quiche i guess that was from the 80s this was like real men don't drink tea in the u.s and you know the coffee itself they'd say it's stronger you know and tea is effeminate and weak and all these kinds of different genderings of the tea it's so funny because in england of course in britain there's this notion of of Bricky's tea, bricklayer's tea, yeah, which is right. immensely strong and immensely sweet, and only yeah. real men who are working hard drink that stuff. That idea really ends up being the coffee in the United States. And I think that tea did get associated with Britain, and Britain, you know, there's still a lot of distaste, you know, for kind of memories of being a colony in the 19th century. And so there's a sense of, and there were some problems, British-Anglo-American relations weren't particularly good in the late 19th century so it was like the british people love the british snobs you know and uh you know not the kind of frontier man but Mm. i think that that prejudice gave rise to a lot of funny advertising trying to appeal to men you know (laughs) like uh, using lumberjacks and football players and you know showing them drinking tea and it never worked i still say that's because they never learned to make a decent cup of tea but i know that's wrong There is no simple explanation for why the Brits became a nation of tea drinkers. But Erica Rappaport's book, Her Thirst for Empire, How Tea Shaped the Modern World, is a fascinating and detailed look at the history of tea. And you'd be amazed at how much we take for granted today links back to tea. I'll put the details in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. 
And there's also a copy there of that infographic we talked about. The Chinaman shrinks from £104 million of tea in 1867 to a little under £10 million in 1907. And over the same 40 years, the Indian grows from £6.25 million to £162 million. Which reminds me, it's time again to enlist your help to make Eat This Podcast grow. Please, take a moment to rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, recommend it to a friend. And don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter, at Eat Podcast, and on Instagram, too, at Eat This Podcast. I'll see you there. In the meantime, I'm off to brew a manly cup of Sri Lankan orange pico. Till next time, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.